The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. A week and a half to go, 12 years ago, on the eve of another presidential election, it was Bloody Friday. Remember that? The big global market collapse uh, that played a significant part in where we are right now, in a society divided between those, quote, too big to fail and those too small to matter. Twelve years ago, the banks were too big to fail. Four years ago, Hillary was too big to fail. For three years, the Russia investigation and the FBI and the FISA court were too big to fail. Let's get to it. Your Stein Show election update... Those of us who think the polls are codswallop shouldn't really be attaching any significance to this development, but the codswallop polls are tightening uh, to show Biden's average poll lead below eight points. You know my prudent estimate of the shy Trump vote, a conservative 4 to 5 percent, but could be more than that. On that basis, though, the 4 to 5 percent last week's Harris poll in the Hill And the tip poll in Investors Business Daily show Biden four points ahead, which means the race is tied. And the Rasmussen poll shows Biden three points ahead, which uh, on my math would mean a narrow Trump lead. What will happen in the days ahead? Well, Biden damaged himself in the debate with his remarks on energy. And in a normal election, I would expect that uh, to have repercussions in Pennsylvania and Ohio and maybe even unto New Mexico and Colorado. But half the electorate has already voted and Joe's back in the basement now, leaving the campaigning to surrogates like Leslie Stoll and Jeffrey Tubin's penis. I believe the penis has a full week of public appearances uh, scheduled. Uh, Joe would probably have this thing in the bag if he'd just made Jeffrey Tubin's penis his uh, running mate. By the way, some people are complaining all the Jeffrey Tubin jokes about his uh, public masturbating over Zoom on the grounds that Jeffrey may be filing a wrongful dismissal suit against uh, CNN and The New Yorker if they fire him. Uh, And if he does uh, decide to sue over this, certainly the evidence will stand up in court. Mark Kelly, the Democrat Senate candidate from Arizona, is denying that the old yearbook photograph of him uh, dressed up as um, Adolf Hitler is genuine. For one thing, his getup doesn't even look like Hitler. He doesn't have the blonde hair and the orange face and the red tie. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Presumably America's next secretary of state uh, has complained that Trump referred to her in the debate as AOC and demands that henceforth he call her congresswoman. The abbreviation AOC is apparently condescending and sexist. Uh, FDR, JFK and LBJ would never have done this to her. Uh, Apparently, uh, 
Jeffrey Tubin's penis stands up when she enters a room, which it doesn't do for Mike Pence, so that's assuredly sexist too. The crisis gets worse. Headline from the College Fix. Harvard professor says Republican Party threatens democracy. Uh, the best way to save democracy uh, would be to get rid of the Republican Party. How many parties would that leave? Oh, just the one. Well, come on, how many parties does democracy need? They are serious about this stuff. More insights from the Academy. Quote, Elizabeth Schmidt, a political science professor at the University of wisconsin Platteville, criticised President Donald Trump for being courteous to the final presidential debates moderator, Kristen Welker of NBC News. The patronising, I respect your handling of this from Trump, is cringeworthy, Schmidt wrote. Would not be happening to a male moderator. It's the, oh, honey, you're trying, of politics. Yeah, he should just have hooted and jeered and mocked and sneered and then walked out like he did with Leslie Stoll. Um, we expect Harvard professors, your parents mortgaged their homes for the insights of, and even professors of the University of Wisconsin-Platteville to talk like this. More disturbing to me has been the confirmation this year that America is now simply one giant college campus. Who are the tough guys? Well, here's a guy who's uh, all about the uh, war waging. Uh, a column by Major General Ed Thomas, the commander of the United States Air Force Recruiting Service, and he's not happy with the flyboys who are signing up. Headline. 86% of Air Force pilots are white men. Here's why this needs to change. Quote, The tragic death of George Floyd and recent events have fueled widespread protests and a renewed call for racial equality nationwide. Amid this, our country has been compelled to reflect on issues that are often uncomfortable, and leaders have been driven to examine their organizations in ways like never before. The Air Force, in many ways, is no different. But as a war-fighting organization, we cannot afford to squander this moment because our future and national security depends on it, unquote. So as the all-time most useless general staff sees it, the reason why America spends 20 years losing to goat herds with fertilizer is because its military is too wide and male. Um, I would, upon reflection, be in favour of actively recruiting all those luxuriant psychotrannies from the flaming storefronts of Seattle and Portland every night and parachuting them in to take out the Taliban. It seems as likely to work as anything else. Uh, thank you, Major General Ed Thomas. I am the I am the very model of a modern major general. I'm woke to white supremacy and quite intersectional. What was that phrase the major general used? A war-fighting organisation for the blood and treasure expended. Any chance of a war-winning organisation, major general? Headline from the Washington Post, quote, A 19-year-old with a van full of guns and explosives plotted to assassinate Biden, federal officials say. Oh, my, this is presumably someone who reads QAnon, maybe a proud boy or a poor boy, as Joe Biden likes to call them. Poor boy, poor boy, downhearted and depressed and in a spin. 
Well, no, actually, if you scroll all the way down past news of the arrest is the latest violent threat against the former vice president, uh, scroll past Treisman, who was carrying identification cards for Washington State, California and Florida, scroll past another 13 paragraphs until the anti-penultimate paragraph you will read from the Washington Post, quote, The 19-year-old's focus on Biden started in the spring, according to the order. Between March and May, Treisman ran a number of Google searches linked to his plot against Biden, including queries on state gun laws and rifle parts. Days after Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont suspended his presidential campaign, Treisman, who had suggested in a Reddit post that he had to, quote, save Bernie, posted a meme with the caption questioning whether he should kill Biden. So we have a homicidal Bernie bro, uh, just as uh, we had on that uh, congressional baseball game a couple of years ago. More crazy, but this one was taken all the way from Alabama. Bam, bam, bam. A naked and bloody suspect in the beating death of a female trucker on a Birmingham street, told officers who arrested him that he had, quote, killed a white lady, unquote, and President Trump made him do it, according to Testimony Wednesday in a Jefferson County courtroom. Charles Levester Gibson, 39, is charged with murder in the killing of 53-year-old Christine Summers. Summers was driving a truck for RTR Transportation in Tennessee. She was a wife, mother, grandmother, and had been driving a truck for about 30 years. 2020, in a fractured republic accelerating towards its denouement. Will sanity survive by the morning of November the 4th? Tales for our time, songs of the week, and of course, the Mark Stein Show. Stein Online is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Members of the Mark Stein Club have access to the full catalog of Stein content, transcripts, and discounts, as well as the opportunity to ask Mark questions and engage with other club members in our comments section. Join the Mark Stein Club today by heading to www.steinonline.com. That's www.steinonline.com. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. As I mentioned at the top of the show, it's the 12th anniversary of Bloody Friday 2008, uh, when on the eve of a presidential election in the United States, all the world's stock markets crashed, some of them posting all-time record losses, wiping out almost a trillion dollars in wealth. That day, If there are any poems about what happened in 2008, I don't know them. Uh, the 1929 Wall Street crash, uh, still the most famous crash, it led to the Depression worldwide, or as they say in America, the Great Depression, as uh, FDR managed to supersize it. Um, but the crash in its aftermath did uh, produce quite a lot of poetry, including a piece I've always liked by Robert S. Warshow. He was a New York intellectual, a cultural critic, which means these days you'd assume he was a man of the left. Uh, in fact, uh, he was one of the first people uh, to write that the, quote, idealism of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg was in fact ugly 
bloody, hardcore Stalinism. Uh, he was not a man of the left. He died young, felled by a heart attack at the age of 37. Robert Warshaw wrote this piece when he was still in high school in the Bronx, uh, a couple of years after the 1929 crash. And I like the fancy of its second line, the garden of wasted things, which as I came to brood on it, uh, is a somewhat paradoxical concept. A garden is there to grow things if you tend to it. But young Warshaw saw the 20s, the jazz age, as a time of material abundance utterly squandered. And you don't have to work too hard to apply that to our own time and an entire generation so mesmerised by the delights on their pocket telephones they cannot raise their heads to see our civilization and its inheritance is sliding off the cliff. So the garden of wasted things, the idle talk that men use to waste away the hours, the lives that have been misdirected. I would say it's a bit teenagey, except that I doubt there's a teenager anywhere in the Bronx today, even before Bill de Blasio closed all the schools, who would be capable of it. So let us spend a few moments in the garden of wasted things with Robert S. Warshaw. I walked one day in the garden of wasted things, and there I found the bitter ghosts of all that had been spent unwisely or lost through brutal circumstance. I found the childhood that some labourer's child had never known. I found the youth that some young man had squandered. There I found some poet's genius that had gone unrecognised. I saw the ghosts of idle words and small talk that men had used to waste away the hours. I saw the hopes that had been smothered and all the dreams that never had come true and laughter that had died for lack of bread. I met with all the lives that had been misdirected and spoke with dreary shades of loves that might have been and songs that never had been sung. I met with all these ghosts and many more and each of them sat silently in the shadows brooding over quirks of mad creation and puppets' dreams. A Poem From Me To You by Robert S. Warshaw. I don't believe he gave it a title other than poem. Those last words, puppets' dreams, are as striking as the garden of wasted things. The 1920s was really the first decade of homogenised mass electronic media, not touring plays at your local theatre or sheet music for you to play yourself on the piano, but motion pictures and gramophone records with big stars like Rudolf Valentino and Gene Austin. And in such a world, even the fancies of our deepest sleep are not our own. Our dreams are those of puppets put there by the manufacturers of such distant delights. Gee, maybe I could get to meet Valentina if I could get to the big town and be a jazz baby dancing in a nightclub. Nine decades on, we are more solipsistic, more self-absorbed, 
but also dreaming the dreams of our puppet masters. Robert Warshaw in the Garden of Wasted Things. That's no place to wind up. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Chris Hall, a Mark Stein club member from the battleground state of Michigan, writes, Dave Rubin, Dave Rubin, whom uh, I miss running into in green rooms and uh, big conferences and the like, because that's all gone. Dave Rubin has an interesting thesis, says Chris, that sitting over top of our political and culture wars There's a reality war where different tribes just believe totally different things and cannot be persuaded by anything resembling logic or reason. This was made uh, evident uh, by Leslie Stahl's shock that Trump would lie, quote unquote, about the good economy before the 2020 plague, despite the fact by scores of empirical metrics that one could at least argue in favour of this position. Another example was Chuck Todd admitting on air that only Fox News viewers would know anything about the Hunter Biden laptop story. It was clear that he was proud of that fact. The world seems to have moved dramatically away from empiricism toward expertism. People no longer live in show-me states, but instead live in tell-me states, and people just will not get off their duffs to check out original sources. This phenomenon phenomenon has seeped into all areas of life, sadly including science and education. Uh, Yes, indeed, Chris, I think we're all living in a tell-me state to one degree or another. About 20 years ago, my old comrade at the New Criterion, James Pearson, used to talk about punitive liberalism. Um, By the way, I dislike using the word liberal, as I think most people from a a British Commonwealth tradition do, for the the left. But that's what Jim called it, punitive liberalism. And he gave an early example, the economic, quote, malaise identified by President Carter, uh, deriving from OPEC jacking up the price of oil and whatnot. And Carter's entire theory of the case in the late 70s was not just that there was a bad economy, but somehow that it was your fault and you better get used to it because the good times were never coming back. And so he took external factors and made them internal and punitive. And that's exactly what's happened uh, this last year. Chicom 19 would have been terrible anyway, but our masters have determined that it is necessary for us to have a punitive public health regime to teach us that we didn't really deserve the good times and that normalcy is never coming back. Uh, In Wales, which is under total lockdown, uh, the joke in the rest of the British Isles, of course, is that if we can quarantine Wales for a fortnight, why can't we quarantine it forever? (laughs) As someone was saying on the BBC the other day, uh, Welshophobia, come Cumryphobia, Cumryphobia, uh, is the last acceptable racism. Anyway, under the lockdown, stores have been ordered to cover up, quote, non-essential items. So if you go into a supermarket, uh, you can buy bread and milk. But uh, if you fancy a Terry's chocolate orange, that's non-essential. And so you can't buy it, even though it's in the store and on the shelf. This is punitive liberalism. Let them not eat cake. Um, I don't even get it, because in Wales, the only really essential item, of course, is a sheep. 
Relax, like the Beeb says, it's the last acceptable racism. So you can't buy a box of chocolates to take them to your girlfriend because if you're living in a designated Tier 2 or Tier 3 neighbourhood, non-cohabiting couples are prohibited from having sex. By Boris Johnson, a bloke who never foregoes a shag with anything that moves. Um, at the time, his adultery with my old colleague uh, Petronella Wyatt broke in the tabloids. I, I think I mentioned a rather odd dinner I had around that time that ended with uh, Boris on his bike furiously pedalling after Petsy's taxi. Um, but at that time, another young lady at The Spectator was absolutely devastated because until she read the papers, she thought she was the other woman. Uh, only to discover that, unfortunately, she was the other other woman. Same uh, as happened uh, to one of the paramours of that Democrat uh, candidate in North Carolina. So you'd have thought Boris was the last person on earth who could credibly issue a bonking ban. Pierre Trudeau famously said that the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation, but Boris, who has had a place in thousands of bedrooms of the nation, now says there's no place for you in those bedrooms. Seven months in, there is no meaningful public health rationale for such measures. And yet the British people accept them. The difference in America, by comparison with much of the rest of the world, is that approximately half the country, we'll have a better idea in a week or so, does not accept the punitive liberalism, which brings us back to... Uh, Chris's first point about the so-called reality war. Uh, the Trump interview was a flop uh, from Leslie Stahl's point of view. It was a flop for Leslie Stahl. Uh, hearing the tape unedited reminds you of just how awful so many lifetime legacy media interviewers are. Absent their researchers and absent producers barking the next question in their earpiece, they're not nimble enough and don't have enough uh, information at their fingertips to do a tough interview uh, as they apparently want to. 20 years ago, I had the misfortune to sit through a raw taping of Ted Koppel in New Hampshire, interviewing the respective mavericks on each side, Bill Bradley and uh, John McCain. And I was staggered by how incompetent Koppel was and have never taken him seriously since. But to be fair to Leslie Stahl, she appears genuinely to inhabit a different world uh, from Donald Trump. And one consequence of the COVID is that it's accelerated the hermetic sealing off of these worlds from each other. Uh, Terence Samuels, the managing editor of NPR News, National Public Radio, announced that uh, when it came to Hunter Biden acting as the cutout, uh, to, uh, to use uh, the, uh, the spooks term, the cutout, for the Chicom Joe Biden relationship, um, Terence Samuels of NPR announced that NPR wouldn't be covering the story. Quote, we don't want to waste our time on stories that are not really stories, unquote. So you've got a choice, NPR fans. Piss off to Rush or Fox and get all the crack pipes on the Yangtze stuff or stick with us uh, and we'll tell you about Joe Biden's plan to eliminate cars by the year 2030 so that rising sea levels don't wipe out the Maldives in the 23rd century. There has always been an element of divided uh, realities, of course. Speaking of NPR, here am I 13 years ago 
2007, recalling a uh, recent appearance on an NPR call-in show. You see, you reel off five facts and the guy goes, oh yeah, well that's just your opinion. I mean... <laughs> Uh, Robert Frost, Robert, you know, Robert, Robert Frost famously said of free verse that it was like playing uh, tennis with the net down. And, and, the, uh, and the trouble with uh, having a discussion, uh, tr trouble with, dis you can't, d discussing cultural relativism with cultural relativists is like playing tennis with some guy who says your ace is just a social construct. Uh, <laughs> We're way beyond that now. Basically, today, the left doesn't need a tennis partner at all. Forty years ago this week, the Polish government weakened and legalized the Solidarity Trade Union. The, the Soviet Union's position uh, was that there was nothing to see here, no news to cover. It was just Western, to coin a phrase, disinformation. That's what we now do, our media do. That's what NPR and Facebook now do with stories they don't like. It's not just that it's not a story, it's that an, an eternal adversary on the other side of the planet is somehow behind it. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Uh, the Big Shot NPR correspondent could ask Joe Biden a question about it, uh, but that would just prove the Kremlin had got to her too. When there is insufficient shared reality, people cannot live together. Because in Chris's words, different tribes just believe totally different things and cannot be persuaded by anything resembling logic or reason. And we are trending very tribal. Uh, that's basically the situation with, say, uh, Israel and the so-called Palestinian territories, where we're meant to be impressed <laughs> Uh, by uh, one side graciously consenting to negotiate the other side's right to exist. <laughs> that's, that's as basic a reality war as it gets. It's not the problem in, say, Quebec, where the Quebecois lefties and the Canadian lefties agree on 90% of everything, and they're basically just arguing uh, about what language they get to torment the citizenry in. Um, Somewhere in between, I would say, are Irish Protestants and Irish Catholics. But if you've ever walked the so-called peace walls in Belfast uh, as they're being locked for the night, as I did some years ago, and you start thinking about a society, uh, about a community that has to be physically sealed off from the other members of that community, it's not so hard to imagine that coming to certain American jurisdictions. But the difference is that I don't want to ban Michael Mann. I don't want to ban uh, Richard Blumenthal. Is that the guy, the Connecticut senator who thinks you should be put in jail if you're a climate denier? Um, I don't want to ban them. They want to ban me. I don't want to silence transgender activists. They want to silence me. They want to cancel me. Uh, there are two realities uh, and however the election goes, the left is determined to impose its reality on the right. Uh, their, may, uh, their message is basically, look, we want to heal the country. We want to bring everyone together. So you can get with the program and vote to repeal Trump. But if you don't, we're going to steamroller you anyway. That's what they mean by bringing everyone together. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week.
October 2020 is the centenary of Albert Haig, born in Berlin. Who's Albert Haig? Well, he was a composer, and every American, not so much in the rest of the world, I'd wager, but every American knows at least one Albert Haig song. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. Words by Dr. Seuss, who's getting kind of semi-cancelled these days, and music by Albert Haig. Bit early in the season for it, of course. Don't want to give any of those alleged suburban women any ideas. You're a mean one, Mr. Trump. Uh, But if you're so minded, in this case, pull a switcheroo and make the mean one the good guy, the Grinch who made Christmas great again. Uh, As I said, the Grinch is mainly an American holiday TV tradition, but if you were in Britain and other parts of the Commonwealth during the early 80s, where this next TV show was oddly far more popular than it was in America, you will know Albert Haig as the music professor, Mr. Shorovsky, in the movie Fame and the telly spin-off, The Kids from Fame. Uh, That's right, Mr Haig was not just a composer, but an actor too. Uh, Fame, as you may recall, was about kids at a New York school for the performing arts, and the music prof was there to be the guy into Bach and Haydn and other stuffy stuff like that, and the young'uns can't dig that because uh, they're into the rock and roll and such like. So here... Uh, For example, one of the kids from fame gets the hideous electronic keyboard out and says, I can write a song on any subject. Listen. Tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. And at that point, Mr. Shorovsky walks into the room and the other kid from fame says... Shorovsky! Here he comes, beating his gums. What's he gonna say? Have a nice day? Everybody listen to the music of Tchaikovsky. Prepare yourself for the coming of Shorovsky. God knows what the composer in Albert Haig made of that number. He was born to a Jewish family in Germany and grew up in the... Weimar Republic and the Third Reich until it became necessary to flee. And he fled all the way to America. But musically, uh, that remained his world, uh, German classical music. In 1955, he was asked to do a Broadway show. His co-author was Joseph Stein, who had a monster hit with Fiddler on the Roof, about a decade later. Uh, But in the 50s, uh, Joe Stein was part of the famous Writer's Room on the Sid Caesars show with uh, Neil Simon, Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, Carl Reiner and all that crowd. And as Joe Stein told it to me a long time ago, long time ago, he got a call from a producer who was looking for another Oklahoma, but this time set in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania! 
Pennsylvania, where the wind comes. This is how producers think, by the way. So Joe came up with a story set in Amish country. It was really one of the first mainstream manifestations of the Amish in American popular culture, uh, even if it was a handful of Jews who cooked it up. Uh, and the show was called Plain and Fancy, and it was a surprise hit that season on Broadway. And Albert Haig's big take-home tune for the show became very popular around the world. This was a top ten hit amidst all the Elvis and Bill Haley in Britain, in 1956 for Edmund Hockridge. Um, Ted Hockridge was uh, Canada's answer to Howard Keel, a big manly baritone. I had the pleasure of introducing him in concert many years ago, and Ted was a sweetheart, although I don't think he sang this song that night. Young and Foolish. <laughs> effect. I would much prefer it if Ted had sung Young and Foolish in one legato phrase rather than nipping out for a cuppa uh, between the young and the and as he does multiple times there. But what do I know? That's the sound of a top 10 record in 1956. In the intervening two thirds of a century, hundreds and hundreds of singers have recorded that song. Dean Martin, Paul Anker, The Four Tops, uh, the legendary Bruce Forsyth, for fans of uh, Strictly Come Dancing, the show that Americans know as Dancing with the Stars. And almost as many instrumentalists have recorded it. Young and Foolish is hugely popular with jazz musicians, especially pianists like uh, Bill Evans and Oscar Peterson, George Shearing. Uh, and that's a little surprising because it's not really of any great harmonic interest. Uh, Albert Haig was a fine melodist, and with Young and Foolish, it's really all uh, in the melody. Uh, here's a version from the early 60s by someone who back then was young and not in the least bit foolish. She had big hits with It's My Party and You Don't Own Me and Sunshine Lollipops and Rainbows. But along the way, she found time for this. Produced by Quincy Jones, here's Leslie Gould. Yeah. 
spotted the main obstacle to young and foolish uh, moving into the category of top rank standard. The title is strong, the tune is beautiful, uh, but the lyric is at least semi-inept because it's never clear whether it's sung by someone who's young and foolish, as the first words suggest, we haven't longed to be young and foolish, or someone older who's looking back to when he or she was young and foolish. I wish that we were young and foolish again. When you're young and foolish, you don't think of yourself as such. The summer stretches on forever. Everything is more intense, especially the ache of love. She's gone away to visit her auntie for three days, and oh, each day without her is like an eternity. A, a young person does not generally have that perspective on their youth. So the lyric is uh, slightly at odds with the mature, reflective tune. So you either get kids like Leslie Gore singing a non-youthful sentiment, or you get Tony Bennett looking back uh, with a lyric whose first half appears to be in the present tense. Uh, the words, by the way, are the work of Arnold Horwitz. And in the show Plain and Fancy, he and Albert Haig wrote a verse to Young and Foolish in order to set up that chorus. But the verse is so dull musically uh, that nobody sings it. Um, Sue Rainey. Sue Rainey. Uh, Sue was young and not in the least bit foolish and the coming thing. When she was 13, she was singing on Jack Carson's TV show. Then she signed with Capitol Records and at the age of 17 was recording albums of very grown-up songs like When Your Lover Has Gone. And she never quite recovered uh, from that. Um, but here she is a couple of years ago trying to solve the problem of Mr. Horwitz's lyric by finding another song to help set it up. Uh, in this case, a very worldly French song with an English lyric by Johnny Mercer uh, that Sue presses into service as a verse for Young and Foolish. Ah, the apple trees Blossoms in the breeze That we walked among Lying in the hay Games we used to play was sung only yesterday 
today When the world was Foolish music by Albert Haig, who would have been 100 years old this October. I ran into him when he was touring a two-person show with his wife under the title Haig and Haig, His Hits and His Missus. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> Uh, I guess between the garden of wasted things and young and foolish, I'm in a bit of an elegiac uh, mood today, even though I have uh, no desire whatsoever to be young and foolish. I'm happy to be old and ghoulish. Old and ghoulish. That will do it for today's show. Stick with us this weekend for more music and Kathy Shadle's movie column, plus on the election front. Uh, we'll stand by uh, should any new October surprise of the day or maybe October surprise of the hour strike. Uh, next week, I'm being deposed in a legal matter, which, as is the way with the crap hole of American justice, will suck up huge amounts of time. So we may have a guest columnist or two for you. Uh, we shall make sure they're youngish and not in the least bit foolish. Stay safe, stay free.
us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.